to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. From Full Service Radio, this is Bad Feminist Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice. So welcome back to our podcast. This is your host, Mia Sarah. And today, I will be co-hosting with a colleague from Ethnocene Collective, Natalie Nezodorani. Maggie, who's usually co-hosting with me, she's in Palestine right now working on a documentary about olive tree farmers. So I'm super happy to have Natalie on. Yay! Happy to be here. So how about you tell our audience a bit about yourself and your background, Natalie? For sure. I'm Natalie Nesva-Durani. I'm a visual anthropologist and filmmaker and have been collaborating with these amazing women at Ethnocene Collective for several years now. So it's been really cool to chart our growth and to be hosting this podcast for the first time. Yeah, so so my interests are uh, right now community-based filmmaking and participatory filmmaking, and my focus is on Iran. Uh, So I have a couple projects going there right now. My dad is a white man from the south in the U.S. My mom is Iranian from Iran. I grew up in California, and some of the things that are on my mind more right now are the challenges of doing research, the barriers that I think prevent collaborations between cultural producers and scholars. Like for example, right now the economic sanctions, US Mm. imposed economic sanctions have created massive barriers to I think really important community-based film work that I have been talking to for a long time now. And I should also say that working across barriers is one of the things that really stands out to me about your work, Patricia. And that's a nice segue. Today we are excited to speak with Professor Patricia Alvarez Astacio, who is an anthropologist, filmmaker, and a super rad programmer of ethnographic filmmaking. Thanks for that segue. Now I'm going to continue reading her bio. She is an anthropologist, filmmaker, whose scholarly research and creative practice develops in the folds between ethnography, critical theory, experimental methods, and the documentary arts. She's an assistant professor in the anthropology department at Brandeis University and holds a PhD in anthropology with a designated emphasis in film and digital media from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Patricia is currently working on her book, manuscript called Moral Fibers, Making Fashion Ethical, which explores the Peruvian alpaca wool supply chain, analyzing how, through the intervention of development projects, indigenous women artisans and their aesthetic traditions are interpolated into ethical fashion manufacturing networks. And we'll talk a little bit about her film called Entre Tejido, which weaves together the different sites and communities involved in the supply chain. So bringing viewers into contact with the ways objects we wear are intertangled in a national racial politics and histories. So welcome, Patricia. We're so happy to have you. Hi, Natalie and Mia Sara. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be chatting with you today. Thanks. I think you know, when we have people on, I think it's really helpful for the audience and also for us. How did you even get into documentary filmmaking? Like, what was your background? What is visual anthropology and what the hell is like ethnographic filmmaking? Maybe I'll start with my own, a little bit of my own background, because I think I kind of had to deal with those questions. And I Mm -hmm. 
took me a while to figure out what those things were. So I'm, I'm from Puerto Rico and I did my undergrad there and I studied anthropology and art and I was and involved in different aspects of the arts community while I was in my in my undergrad and I actually I had been taking photography classes since I was a teenager and my parents are artists so they really encouraged that that those practices and kind of grew up in that milieu so I was kind of interested and drawn to to video but at the university level in Puerto Rico I think there there isn't really if there we didn't have really film programs there's communications and journalism, and then there's video art. I think now there's more collectives and interests and spaces for filmmaking, both in fiction and documentary, but when I was in college, yeah, there was not that much of a world, so I kind of really took to to working with photography and video in more artistic contexts, but I always felt this resonance between what I was learning in my anthropology courses and the kind of work that I wanted to do visually, but I didn't know there was this thing called visual anthropology, much less ethnographic filmmaking for a really long time. And at that moment in time in the University of Puerto Rico, the library was closed. It was under repairs for like over a decade, I think. Oh my God. A very amount of time. So there was like, it had limited operational facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It was, it was crazy. So it wasn't like I could go and... Google something or go into the media library and, and check out films. And what I knew of documentary was what showed, showed on TV and you could see in the theaters, um, which I wasn't that interested in doing, um, even though I watched them and thought they were interesting, but wasn't kind of compelled to say like, oh, I, I really want to do documentary work. And at some point in my studies, um, a professor who knew I was into art and anthropology, and I was like finding this resonances mentioned visual anthropology. I was like, oh wait, this is <laughs> people who do research and, yeah. and produce visual work through ethnography or use ethnography as a method to do all this other non-written work. Like, what, what the hell is this? And it really captured my, my attention. I've always, you know, being raised in a community of artists and being raised in the Puerto Rican art world, I grew up with the sense that art is not just for art's sake, but that art is also somehow socially and politically entangled in in many different ways, more than when politics or social critique is the explicit object of the piece. Um, And I think in Latin America, there's a long tradition of the merging of politics and social movements and and arts. And so I think that it was already kind of thinking about art and visual production in a certain way. So I started kind of Googling stuff, but I couldn't get a hold of any of the films. (laughs) Um, So I kind of made a blind bet that this is something I wanted to do based on things that I actually had access to and was able to read and apply to to do this as a doctoral student and it wasn't until I got to the U.S. to um, Santa Cruz, California where I had access to a library and was able to talk to scholars and filmmakers who told me what ethnographic film was and I could actually watch all of these films and then that's where documentary as an art form really revealed itself to me mm-hmm. and I saw how compelling it can be, how complex, how aesthetics can be mobilized to tell critical stories about different social and political realities and 
And that's when I realized that you can not just spout information about an issue, but really have a critical argument and also immerse people and pull people into a certain kind of experience, right? Or use images, mobilize images politically within the context of a narrative or semi-narrative or... Yeah, I really love that because I feel like, you know, your experience or just a lot of... Um, schools are still structured in that way where it's like there's communication, there's journalism, and then there's separately like film and film people think of like Hollywood or they think about there's like a particular way that you're supposed to make documentary and there's no other way around it. So it's like pretty astute and pretty brave of you to be like, huh, I know that there's something other, there's something other, I don't know what it is, and I'm just going to go to California and figure out what that is. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. Maybe it's like something about like island life and knowing there's like a world beyond the ocean mm. that you can't visualize and just I kind of jumped off the cliff yeah <laughs> it worked out <laughs> so yeah yeah that's like a really good metaphor of like I can't see it but I know it's there and I can I can sense that there's something there yeah so you know when you arrived to UC Santa Cruz what happened because we were just talking about you being in Puerto Rico and the library being closed for 10 years. Like, that's to me is like nuts because, you know, you're at a learning institution and the library is not available. And it makes me wonder how U.S. colonization of Puerto Rico has impacted stuff like access. And then, you know, you come get off the island and come to Santa Cruz. Look, what was your experience with films when you arrived? Oh, my God. It was like a, a whole new world opened up. Um, so I do have to say, like, something that I cherish about living in a place with certain kinds of limitations was that, yeah, even though I couldn't get access to the films of, you know, Jean Rouge, and I was, you know, really excited to see what this work by Trin Minh Ha was. Um, at that point, YouTube wasn't really a thing, so it wasn't like I could find pirated versions of, of these films. There was like a subterranean culture where people would like copy VHSs, so if anyone found a film, they would copy it and then circulate VHSs around in the kind of undergraduate community. And so that that did create the sense of like a particular community and kind of little in-world that was nice. But of course, when we're talking about art, film, and film with a big F, I guess, people are not necessarily showing certain kinds of documentaries, right? Um, it's much more experimental or fiction or art house. So yeah, so I always appreciated that kind of DIY, like we're gonna do and try to find out and circulate. But I was completely mind blown <laughs> in a very positive way not only when I walked into the library but when I saw like the media library that they had and you know like it's not just I could see the one film I read about but I could sit down and watch like their whole world and I also was able to be in classrooms where we could have this very deep and critical conversations about cinema, about the visual, about the role of research in making documentaries um, and how it's represented or not and why. It got really, it got me like really excited and I was like, ah, this is, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a shift, you know, um, on how to watch and think about, about films, right? Because I had a lot of exposure to video art, right? There's, you know you get the concept in, in many cases, right? Or you have this experience that because of how galleries work, it's 
a minute, you know, maybe if you're brave, you might stay in there five minutes and then you walk out. So duration is, is not a process. You kind of go in and, and you get it. I was like totally transformed by having to sit and think of duration um, as like an important element and have my body, mm. my whole body, um, either suffer through it or enjoy it for <laughs> a reason. And so it was extremely t- transformative that very first year. Um, and I was like really excited to do many things. But going back to the colonial condition, I, of course, I was also simultaneously angry. Mm. <laughs> Because the university in Puerto Rico does operate based on a lot of federal funds because of the colonial situation and the ways in which neglect operate and foster cultures of corruption, right? Then you have a university that takes a decade almost to have a functional library. Or um, the university theater was also closed for a really long time. It actually opened the year I graduated. So it was like the first time it was used in over a decade and so so that angered me because you know yeah there this is something that any institution should have available it's really easy to blame the puerto rican government and it's it's their fault but at the end of the day it's also kind of a certain screen that is work is there and works in that way because of the u.s and and i think right now the colonial relationship of the university and higher education is more visible as the fiscal control board that Mm -hmm. the U.S. imposed Mm -hmm. is cutting funding to the university, Mm -hmm. shutting campuses down, trying to raise tuition, and putting basically the nature of public education in the island in a very dire condition. And unlike in the U.S., public education there is very accessible for a lot of people without loans. So you do have a big array of socioeconomic positions that are able to go to college so it's much it feels much more public than universities here back when I went to college my tuition was six hundred dollars a semester (gasps) jeez that's like rent for my like room for one month in Ithaca New York oh my gosh I was gonna say that's not even rent in San Francisco or New York (laughs) um yeah should I say more about what visual anthropology or ethnography is yeah I think maybe like ethnographic filmmaking and also thinking about duration as this theme of these different aspects of your work and practices and how Maybe that's something that comes through the ethnographic filmmaking practice. Yes, um, ethnographic film is, it's a weird thing. And I think it's a weird thing because it it sounds very obscure and there are many debates about what makes an ethnographic film. I think I've developed my own take on it, which people might agree or disagree with, but... um, Yeah, let's hear the definition, the petitia definition of ethnographic filmmaking. First of all, I don't necessarily think that for a film to be ethnographic, it has to be made by an anthropologist. I think anthropologists can very well make other kinds of documentaries that are not ethnographic. So I really like to dissociate the genre with discipline in some respects. Um, I think that's probably very liberatory for anthropologists as well as filmmakers. <laughs> but that being said, I do think that Part of the distinguishing mark of an ethnographic film is the kind of methods and research that go into making the film. I think more so than a particular form, I think that good ethnographic films are films that 
mimic ethnographic practice. They tend to be projects mm. where you are in the field for a long time, where you build rapport with people, when you really develop observational skills as well as interviewing. So I think it's really anchored in a certain kind of form of making, of, of doing ethnography that I don't think it's limited to anthropologists um, in the same way that ethnography is used as a method in, in other disciplines. Um, and I think a lot of filmmakers, you know, in documentary, in the documentary world approach this. I think, you know, and this can extend to work in archives, um, for example, too, as well as with communities. I also feel like a good ethnographic film, just like an ethnographic text, has a good critical informed argument, right? Even if it seems like it's a portrait of a community or a space, it's oh, it's never just a portrait, right? It's always, because it comes out of this kind of long, deep research processes, um, I think it always is saying something critical. Um, it has an anthropological inquiry and question about whatever subject or object or critique of subject and object um, that is that is making. So it's not just telling a good story, but it's about making a good argument that a viewer can agree or disagree, that can trigger questions and debates, and that can foster new ways of thinking rather than just walking out and saying, I learned a lot about X community or like, oh, you know, ooh, look at how those people live. Like to me, if you walk out of a film like that, that's not an ethnographic film, even if it's about a culture. So process, like sustain engagement and then like a critical argument. I like that. I think that's really clarifying. I mean, I also find it striking to hear you discuss your definition of ethnographic filmmaking and thinking of your film. Like when I first watched your film, there's this presumption, I think, that ethnographic film can be lo-fi, it could be rough around the edges, maybe it's not so pretty all the time, but they put it on the projector and it's just like opening with these incredible images, these, you know, these beautiful shots of Peru where you were doing your field work. And one of the things that you were just talking about in your definition that stood out to me is kind of like observational cinema and the timeline and the meditation that we have around observational cinema. There's this idea that observational cinema is detached, it's watching, it's waiting. There's a kind of a whole political discussion in visual anthropology, I think, around that, the relationship between the camera and the subject and the viewer. But your film, for me, was a little bit mind-blowing because the critiques of power were so built into these like very meditative, beautiful shots. wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your movie. Yeah, no, th thank you. <laughs> it's um, Thanks for the, the comments, and I'm, I'm glad that that was your, your experience watching it. I think that, A, scholars and anthropologists tend to be afraid of aesthetics. It's a very long tradition, and I know that, you know, people like Anna Grimshaw and Lucian Taylor, you know, have really encouraged us to see the political power and the argumentative capacity of images. Why am I going to use images without really using what the medium is able to bring to me and one of those things is beauty right mm -hmm. so if beauty beauty can work to further what you want to say and also to challenge forms of representation and you know and as a filmmaker i i also appreciate the craft so i don't like to be 
rough around the edges unless it works for what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, I think aesthetics in that way ultimately is, is part of the meaning and the experience that we have. And in a, yeah, an observational cinema, like, yeah, Natalie, totally. Like, people talk about how it's detached, the fly in the wall. But I think... Oh, wait, just can you guys really quickly give a brief, like, definition of what observational cinema is for those who don't know what that is? Yeah, so, uh, you know, just thinking about the history of anthropology and the first uses of the camera as this sort of research tool, as in, quote, objective research tool, and then writing against that idea really happening in the 70s and 80s. And I think of, for example, you mentioned Trin, Tin, Timon Ha's work, you know, writing against the idea that the camera can be this objective research tool. Yeah, and that it'll capture whatever reality unfolds out there as if reality was this objective thing that just happened. Um, so you were just supposed to be a fly in the wall and not let your subjectivity drive the be seen. But which is ironic because the best observational films are films that are kind of highly crafted and edited to make a viewer feel and get that argument or that take, critical take, by purely being immersed, right? It doesn't feel like anyone's holding your hand at all, even though the scenes are intensely crafted and cut and manipulated to make that argument or bring up critical questions. But you as a viewer, you're just in there following whatever is, is happening. I think that has always been one of the irony. And yeah, and big critique was that, A, there's no, what what does it mean that it's capturing a reality out there? Like, <laughs> and, you know, the critique to the objectivity, you're still deciding where to place the camera and, and what to shoot and whatnot and, and all that stuff. And of course, the distant assumption of, you know, of no intervention, especially where you're dealing with representations of, of those anthropological others and minority communities comes with its own series of ethical mm -hmm. issues. But I also feel like, and maybe this is where my ethnographic training comes in, I feel like part of what makes this ethnography powerful method is precisely the intimacy that you need to create to do good ethnographic work. So you're there observing and talking to people and entering into relationality with people in your field side where you exchange gifts, where you go to birthdays, when when you have you're there for people during a hard time and then they're there for you, right? There's a lot of intimacy that is important for this kind of research. And I feel like there's can be also a lot of intimacy that can come out of observational footage, especially once you really know intimately the space you are in and when you know intimately and have learned how to look at it and how to listen to it beyond just your own gaze as an outsider, right? And so I, I guess I wanted to really try to convey that mm -hmm. in the film, that yeah. being a fly in the wall doesn't mean that you're a voyeur, but that it can also mean that, you know... I don't want to handhold you and give you a lot of explanations. I want you to come into this space and I'm going to guide you kind of based on this kind of intimate knowledge that I've gained and it's knowledge that I've obtained by learning how to look, how to touch, how to hear from those I've been working with, right? So in a way, it's also kind of taking you through some part of my own 
relearning and reattunement process, you know, doing ethnography can be very vulnerable, right? You have to kind of trust others um, to that you're kind of learning from them too, right? You're not the expert walking in. Um, and for me, that is very intimate and there's a lot of power in that intimacy. And I think that centering the value and knowledge of those who we work with, right? That they have been willing to share with us and giving it value and centrality. I also feel like because of my object of study lends itself very easy to exoticization, right? So you can see, you know, indigenous women in traditional dress and fashion models wearing like this like weird and beautiful and interesting outfits that are inspired on indigenous aesthetics, right? You can just kind of get caught up in this images with long histories of exoticization and misrepresentations. And I, what I wanted to do was to also kind of you mobilize that intimacy politically and say like, well, I'm not going to let you look at these images in the way you're used to. I'm trying to, and, and I'm going to, I want to find ways in which I can kind of pull you in and make them seem less exotic without erasing their difference. Kind of, it was really <laughs> difficult to do this. And hopefully then you can feel those tensions and those power relations. I think for me, the close-up became really important to create, to foster that, that intimacy um, through, throughout the film because garments can look exotic, but if you look down at how they're made, they're a bunch of women knitting, and you know that's something that we can see in the West and everywhere, right? It's like an act that we can all recognize and feel close to and associate with our own intimate experiences of a grandmother who knits or an aunt or learning how to do it yourself and then kind of use that as a tool with observational material. Well, it's almost like you should write a book or something. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If only you were a professor who could write this all down. (laughs) Could you uh, describe the images that are in the film or like what the film is about for the listener oh that's right i'm talking about a film that no no one has seen um not yet they're going not, to maybe you'll be inspired to watch that that'd be great <laughs> um so the film follows it's it's a supply chain story and it takes you through it, it kind of interconnects how this ethical social responsible ethnic looking fashion garments or ethically ethnically influenced fashion garments are produced, right? So it takes you all the way from shearing alpacas to runways in Lima. And the film interweaves, right? So it's it's not a linear story because supply chains are not linear, right? Many things happen simultaneously and in different orders. Um, so the film tries to keep present those spaces, right, and kind of interweave them. So we uh, spend time in artisanal Andean workshops in, in the city of Huancavelica, where I did my research, um, and where women from the highlands are doing alpaca wool garments for the fashion industry, and in this case, a national fashion designer. Um, but they also manufacture for global brands and, you know, things that are done by alpaca with alpaca kind of luxury items and of course they're hired because they have a long-standing tradition with the material and skills right usually it's assumed that this is like some pre-hispanic ancestral skill that they've inherited 
Um, it's things are marketed that way. Objects and people are marketed that way. But nonetheless, you know, textiles are really important traditions in the Andes and they are masters in what they do. And so they collaborate with different fashion designers. So here we have the process in the film of the fashion designer working in the in the workshops and we have herding and then this um, fashion runway event and we have the backstage and the models and in Peru the artisans or member of the artisan artisanal group walks out with the designer right so they're someone is there present in the indigenous dress and I wanted to show how the different power relations and tensions with how indigeneity operates at different stages right because even though we have an indigenous material done by indigenous people to do indigenous inspired looking things it's not the same and the power relations are different and so so the film does that and then it also I I work a lot with close-ups of hand knitting and material um, alpaca wool and those go along with this kind of sound designed moments that kind of also weave together the ambient sounds of the different spaces and the idea was to you know alpaca wool is part of indigenous ontologies and cosmovisions and has certain qualities that as an outsider I heard about and I try to learn but had to face my own limits at a different kind of knowledge and experiential system that I was an outsider and I thought that it was really important to center the importance of material and the knowledge of the material in the Andes and the skill that comes with that so I kind of used that to structure the film and to you know intentionally anchor it on this like, I'm not going to tell you the meanings of it, but hopefully with the scenes, we can kind of start learning that this is very meaningful material and develop a different kind of intimacy that can help us enter into the other spaces differently. Super helpful. Yeah, and super complicated. But I love how you're mentioning about you're kind of showing, like, you learn the way of looking and seeing and feeling and that you are not really interested in, in, in telling the viewer exactly what they're seeing but just showing them a different way of looking and feeling yeah I think I'm really influenced by the work of a lot of indigenous scholars and indigenous filmmakers and this critique against you know the long history of extractivism to indigenous communities both from filmmakers and scholars and you know that sometimes we have to um, like Audra Simpson says like employ ethnographic refusal I'm not there to extract and re-narrate and um, I'm there to to learn and also recognize that some things I won't be able to learn that are important to others and recognize the value of that. And I think there's something that can be really politically powerful when we're just confronted with with that limit and can see the beauty and the importance and kind of feel that importance and that meaningfulness without necessarily having to extract and translate it. Um, I mean, we haven't really talked so much about the programming angles. Mm. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Patricia? I, I would like to talk about programming. Yeah. I also get weird out talking about myself and my work for a long time. But your work it's is so good. great. <laughs> like, it's so good. <laughs> Everyone should know about it and how you're thinking about it. Okay, okay, how about this? How about let's start with, like, why did you even start programming? Going back to my graduate school days, um, that's when I started programming. And 
basically, I had to sit down and write. And I think a lot through making. Not like this idea that I can just sit down and write for six months. Like my my brain doesn't work that way. Like when I'm making things, I'm also kind of thinking. Like this kind of critical thinking processes are are going, and actually, I kind of get better ideas. Then I can go back and write, and so I, I felt like I was being tortured. <laughs> you know, so bad. I felt like I was being tortured and or going crazy um, forcing my brain to work in a way it didn't really work mm. and I had this opportunity when this um, anthropology journal culture anthropology um, was doing this like new web redesign and wanted to be more contemporary and publish things in a more timely manner than the really slow academic timeline. And I reached out to them and said, hey, there's not really a web space for visual anthropology and to share the work that visual anthropologists are doing. Can I start it on your website? And they said, yes. Um, so that's how the visual and new media review got started. And as part of that, I started this um, screening series. I was like, well, I can't make things, but I can, you know, watch things. And maybe this is an excuse to, you know, A, be engaged and potentially talk with a bunch of filmmakers and artists who are doing really interesting work. Um, and this could kind of give me a good fix while I need to <laughs> keep writing. And so that's how I, I got started. And so we started the screening room series. And so every month we would have a week of film up for two weeks and for people to watch. And it came along with interviews with filmmakers and artists and media and materials that they recommended or that were influential to them and they're thinking about the project or the research. And it was one of the most watched, viewed um, pages um, in cultural anthropology at the time. And that's when I got hooked because, A, I was seeing a, a lot of stuff that are, is really hard to find, a lot of really amazing work, but it also felt like this one place where all this really interesting film and art projects were actually circulating publicly. Like, and for the first time, I felt like we talk about how film has the capacity to move across publics and all this stuff, but they can also be a very insular world where this work does not really circulate that much so I was like oh I'm actually doing this and this is really exciting and it's opening up different conversations and moving into different spaces and during that time I also had the opportunity to start working as a film festival manager for a society for visual anthropology film and media festival and I was a broke grad student so it also helped me pay and be able to go to the big anthropology conferences. <laughs> so otherwise, I, I don't know if I could have gone. And so there, I also kind of started learning the ropes about programming and festival organizing and kind of really thinking and seeing, you know, and, and kind of getting, thinking and seeing and feeling the importance of circulation and distribution, which is something we oftentimes don't think about, like, what are the circulation spaces? Are we really reaching publics that we should be reaching? And who is, right? Are the filmmakers that we get recognition, you know, where are they being seen? And who is not being seen in this kind of crazy neoliberal film festival system? And so that, yeah, that's how I got it started. And eventually now I'm, I'm director of that same, yeah. <laughs> that same film festival. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Right. Which is one 
one out of two ethnographic film festivals in the U.S. In Europe, there's a ton, but here we have two. Damn. And the other one is the Margaret Mead Film Festival. Yeah. Um, did you have a, another question, follow-up question, Natalie? I don't want to dominate the combo here, because if you don't, I have one. <laughs> You know, just a reflection that practices and duration and watching films in their entirety and kind of respecting the art and the meditative qualities of it and, you know, how this really sort of defies the logics that force us to consume films, as you were saying, in these quick, rapid consumption of storytelling ways. Not necessarily a question, just a reflection. Yeah, Sarah, get in there. (laughs) Why is it important to have people like you programming? How polite do I need to be? (laughs) Don't be polite. (laughs) Politeness, or maybe maybe you should be polite. Maybe you should be polite. Um, yeah, going back to this crazy neoliberal system and the ways in which film festivals have become crazy as markets and people don't watch the films anymore. And it's a combination of the madness of how many films get submitted, the structure of the system that makes it impossible to do so, and also the ways in which the film world is also driven by passing trends and and fads and the character-driven story. (laughs) Or, you know, there's kind of homogenization and stories that become like hegemonic that are very much a easy to consume b can produce and reproduce a very kind of white western male gaze and that foster a system where the same not only the same kinds of films are being watched um are being circulated but that under this guise of like open submission it's really not considering the the voices and interventions of many other filmmakers of color, queer filmmakers, differently abled filmmakers, right, that are purposely pushing formal boundaries and honoring other ways of telling stories and honoring other ways of making arguments that they don't even get seen and they get buried under 3,000 submissions. And maybe I'm also coming to this as a filmmaker and knowing the value of the amount of work that goes into making a film for someone to dismiss it in a minute or five. How can you tell a film is good or interesting or is making a good intervention? How can you tell all of those things beyond the technical qualities of a film in three to five minutes? You you really can't unless it's a formulaic documentary where you have your character and, you know, it has the introduction in the same way all the films need to have an introduction and it just reproduces a one world, as, you know, some scholars would say, form of telling story. And it would only, only tell certain amounts of stories. And so there's many filmmakers that we respect and read and learn about today that if we would only watch the first five minutes of their films, they would have never become the important figures that they are. Different programmers, you know, programmers like me, of color, of different communities, um, women, are precisely looking for films that break that mold, right? And that are trying to look at films in a way that respects the filmmaker's craft and time, and that hopefully are looking at something more than like, oh, the first five minutes of this intro has great production quality values, 4K, or it's using film in this like nice hipster way. Um, And I can tell what the rest of the film is going to be about. Because you have a mass amount of films, it's really easy to just go pull out the names that you know and give them space, even if their second or third film is not as good. And you didn't even see anyone else's film. So I 
been told I'm kind of crazy for doing this, but since I started directing the film festival, I try to watch every film almost to the end, or at least over half of every film, which means that last year I watched like over a hundred films. <laughs> Um, and, you know, some of them I knew that weren't going to make it. Some of them I were like, this is an amazing story. But, you know, we also have to balance production quality and aesthetic elements in relation to the story. Like, we're not just going to put a film that's not well crafted, <laughs> even if it has a good story. Right. Like that you have to balance out those qualities and that were amazing experiences and I actually remember some of those films better than others that were like very highly produced and and I think it's a way of you know not only finding and literally taking the submissions the open submissions process seriously and trying to challenge the existing politics of of this kind of film programming structure but also of kind of at least honoring the time and work and craft and expertise of, of the filmmaker and be like, I, yeah, I remember my film, I sent it to so many festivals that it didn't even get played. Not even, not even what? a minute. Not even a minute. What? Um, yeah. So this film is going to get played somewhere. <laughs> we have some ideas of how to show some work that doesn't get showed. So yeah. stay tuned, y'all. Y'all need to see this film. It's real good. It, it did get played. In, it did a film festival run, but out of the amount of festivals that I submitted to, like if you watch even like part of it, and I get rejected. Like, it's fine. I get it. You can't program everything, but to pay fifty bucks yeah. to submit a film no. and not even get played a minute, come on. Right, yeah. and then you, and then the other thing is that you look at the films across the major festivals, and it's the same film circulating yeah. around all of them. Yeah. It's almost like they see what one's playing and then choose it. So I feel and like don't do the work themselves, the programming work that you're really dedicated to. It's kind mm-hmm. of an insane task, yeah. But I think it's a way of going against this yes. kind of neoliberal Western system yes. of like doing film festivals. And also, like, last year, um, because the film festival I direct is itinerant and it's a satellite to the big anthropology conferences, I decided that I wanted the festival to really engage with the community. And there's different critiques that made me reach this. Um, One is that conferences and film festivals bring their bubble to the place, show these films and have discourses about community filmmaking and collaborative work and the potential of film to, you know, do things in communities and in the world. But then in practice, that same community and those same people are included and not part of it. And we just kind of pass in like and through like tourists and watch a bunch of films. And so I wanted to put my money where my politics are. So my film premiered at the Havana International Film Festival, which is the most amazing film festival I've ever been to. Because, yeah, it's, if you guys go. Um, It's a film festival totally grounded in the community. Like, the whole city goes to the film festival. People get vacation, school teachers, taxi drivers, policemen, like, documentary shorts that are usually empty in a lot of festivals are full experimental film screenings people go and so the the whole city is part of this film festival like you really feel the power that cinema can have um when it doesn't become this elite obscure watching experience for the hyper educated and artistically minded and so I was like, I want to try to do something like this. So last year, the festival was in San Jose, California, and we collaborated with the Watsonville, Watsonville Film Festival, which is um, 
more than a film festival. It's this kind of community organizing organization. And Watsonville is a town south of Santa Cruz, California, that is mostly immigrant farm worker families to that work in the films fields in the area. And so the organization created this film festival to as a way of fusing cinema to address community issues, right? So it's fostered a bunch of filmmakers to make films about the community. So screenings can also trigger and be part of bigger discussions around community issues, but it also helps celebrate, and this is the words of the director, Consuelo Alba, um, it also helps celebrate the diversity of the community, right? A community that is mostly immigrant farm working, but that, you know, has a historic Japanese, uh, Japanese Americans, you know, from when they were came out of the internment camps that settled there, you know, their relationship with the white California, um, different immigrant communities that come and move and kind of how everyone can kind of create this image from the community about they all coexist and kind of celebrate it with each other. And I thought it was just kind of fabulous and amazing. And it's like right there. So we partner and they came and showed some of the films about Watsonville that they different filmmakers have done and it was like an amazing experience. I was in the audience there and first of all I could barely find a seat. It was packed and I didn't really know what to expect from it but I wanted to learn and you know like you said about celebrating diversity I was just so fascinated by how different this you know the storytelling that came out of that film festival is. You know there's so many representations about migration and immigration and these stories were about like relationships and jokes coming through and you know and then you know afterwards the experience of being in the audience and watching the directors and some of the people featured in the film stand up and they're all either non-gender conforming women of color I mean it was just so powerful for it not to be an event that's you know this is carving out this space, but it's doing this work anyway of celebrating diversity and showing intimacy and relationships. Yeah, and how I think it's it's really important um, for us to also recognize and see, you know, we don't all have to travel to the Indian highlands to... <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not Peruvian, so yeah, I went far away um, to do really interesting, meaningful work and the power that cinema can have in communities can take very different forms and we should be open to being creative and experimenting with it and giving it space. I really think we need to rethink how we're choosing and watching films and we need to stop thinking our audiences are going to get bored and or are stupid. People watch a lot of media and people crave stories and crave the power of cinema to show us the world anew you know make the familiar strange and the strange familiar and to do that you need not only multiple voices but multiple ways of telling those stories and we cannot keep programming and selecting films in the way we are because we're just reproducing with different styles the same way so I think we need to kind of redefine and reinvent was the political task of the programmer and maybe even be more critical of the film festival system, even though it's a big way of having our films shown. So then let's move outside of that and be more creative in how we think about circulating cinema. Preach it. That was Patricia Alvarez Estacio. And I would like to thank Natalie for co-hosting on this one.
You did a great job, Nat. It was great being with you all. And that's a wrap, y'all. Thank you. Listen to us next time. Yeah. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you, guys. This is great.